You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Harry Moreno, who is using Django and Python to run a social media network that lets folks in New York City easily find friends and things to do. Harry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting us know a little bit more about the site you've developed? Yeah, absolutely. So the site I I developed, a, we call it Lit, L-I-T-T. And it's basically, well, it's, it's changing over time. Originally, it started off with a focus on a native native phone app that you would get from like the Apple store, the, the iTunes store, or from the Google Play store. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we're going to go into it. Uh, recently, we've been focusing on the web application. So lit.nyc uh, on the internet. Okay. So is this a project that uh, you just decided to start on your own or do you work for a company? So it's uh, it's my own and it is a company, but it's a very small company, right? So we uh, are just getting started. We just cracked uh, 600 users uh, last week. And it's it's a fairly small operation as far as tech companies go. Right. So 600 users, that's 600 people roughly in New York City, all kind of just intermingling, trying to figure out like, hey, let's meet up and, you know, find this event or go here, or go there. Is, is that type of uh, activity is what you do on your site? Yeah, pretty much. I could give um, a very basic short rundown of kind of what we envision people using or doing on the site. So the the premise is like let's say that you want to go eat sushi at some new place uh downtown but none of your friends are available um and you don't want to go by yourself you could go on lit and say hey i'm going to get sushi at this place who wants who else is interested and that would go through to like a like a local activity feed for people near you maybe like a a one mile radius and if other people are interested they can request to connect with you so it's all we do have um, a strong focus on privacy and uh, trying to make the user experience like um, good and not creepy so it's very important that people request to go along with you and request to connect not just um, randomly connect you without you approving it. Right. So from like the app's point of view, the end user has some checkbox where they can opt in to like, yeah, show me events that are happening within a mile or two or something like that. It's actually it's actually implied. So the whole purpose of this application is for, for that use case. So there's no need for a checkbox. It's like if you are uh, broadcasting your, your intentions and your status updates on this application, it's because because you want other people to potentially go with you. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So you have a couple hundred people on the platform. Like what type of like activity do you see typically on the back end? Like specific traffic, like events per day or activity per week, like whatever metric you want to talk about? Yeah, so I always forget, maybe you can correct me, but I've heard both of these terms used almost synonymously, like OKR and KPI. Right. Do you want to just give a TLDR and what those stand for? Sure. Uh, it's more of a businessy kind of thing, but they were popularized by Google famously. OKR is, um, I think it's objectives and key results. Uh, 
and KPIs are key performance indicators. And I'm sure if you talk to someone that was like really into that stuff, they could tell you, oh no, this is use this for this and, and use this one for that one uh, for this situation. But to me, as far as I know, they're pretty um, synonymous. And basically the idea is that you want to, when you're building your business and you're designing your organization, you do want to measure um, a few key indicators. So like, as you said, maybe threads per day or uh, act daily active user. So active user per day, because then the entire organization can be very hyper-focused on making that number go up or keeping it down. And it's, um, it's a really good technique for scaling an organization, right? So when you're a small organization, uh, a small organization, it's fairly easy to say to agree on what to do. But once the organization starts becoming, you know, larger than 10 people, larger than 50 people, literally figuring out what everyone should be doing and focusing on becomes a, a problem in and of itself. So uh, that's, that's what those terms mean. Okay. In your case, though, like, what is your primary metric? Like, what, what do you try to drive up on the day to day? Yeah, right now we are we have daily active user. So not pure, not just how many people are signed up, but how many people are actively checking in every day. So how many people open the app every day? How many people, you know, share, make a make a make a plan every day on the app? That's something that we are tracking. We are also tracking kind of like the quality of the of the plans and events, right? So we track RSVPs per event, right? So then that that allows us to focus the entire organization on making a sticky product. So a product that has people coming back every day and then uh, the quality on the events, right? So if people are making quality events where uh, several people are, are expressing interest in that, that's probably something we should be trying to go up as well, trying to make that go up as well. Those are the two main ones that, that come to mind. So swinging back to the app now, I don't think we went over this yet, but like how long has this been up and running for in production? Well, the beta, I still consider it that we're in beta because we are still iterating on the on the product. Um, but the the beta was launched, I think, August of last year. So it's been a couple of months now. I think it's been something like, like, uh, must be eight months by now. Yeah. So you mentioned also that, you know, this thing started as a native uh, mobile app, but then you decided to introduce the web app. Like what motivated you to pick Python and Django to develop this in? Famili uh, familiarity. Like I, I've, I've been writing software professionally for about eight, eight years now. I started my career in 2012, uh, with Ruby on Rails and jQuery. And I've worked in several different stacks. Over the past couple of years, I would say maybe four years, uh, due to my interest in like machine learning, um, I started investing more and more time in really learning Python because Python is the lingua, fra uh, franca, the lingua franca of uh, machine learning and like the, the Python scientific stack is very, very popular in, in kind of like statistical um, modeling, right? So probabilistic or rather... Statistical models for like, it's that's what machine learning is, right? So linear regression and what have you. And so it's been 
it's been sort of like a, a personal reason why I, I've been focusing so much on, on Python. And I did have professional experience with uh, Python Django at my last company. So when it came time to picking a stack for my own project, um, Python Django seemed like the, the most obvious solution. Um, a close second might have been Node.js, but um, I've always had very bad luck building very large applications in Node.js. That's just my own anecdotal experience. I've had more positive uh, experiences with things like Ruby on Rails and Django, maybe because quite frankly, they do more stuff for you. They make more decisions for you. Yeah, that's kind of why I went with Python and Django. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with that decision so far. Right. When you say pretty happy, I mean, would you still rewrite it with that stack today if you were to just go at it from scratch? Absolutely. So going back to your question to to the issue of like, we started with a native phone app. Well, not truly native, but fairly native. We use React Native. and But what we found out is that for our particular use case, which is most people, uh, we're an event site, right? So if you try to, if you pause for a second and step back, when you are personally invited to an event that might have an event page on, on the internet, often it's like a Facebook event page or an Eventbrite event page or a Splashdot event page where the the organizer is actually tr just trying to, well, they're trying to disseminate information. So like, what is the event? When is it? What have you? But also they're trying to collect an RSVP. They're trying to collect and track how many people are likely to show up. And in that sort of use case, uh, it's very hard to beat a URL. You know, making an event page that has a unique URL and then being able to tweet that SMS that, you know, echo it on your Facebook wall and have other people be able to easily open that URL and quickly RSVP. We, when we were, when we were te uh, beta testing the phone app, we realized that it was very hard to beat that distribution advantage that a, a web app would have. So we started beefing up our website and that's kind of like what the states that we're at right now, we're trying to reach feature parity with the phone app uh, on the web app. Nice. So how long do you think it took to get from having just like a fresh Django app, app that you created to having some type of functional app that's like, you know, able to be beta tested? Our situation was a little bit less than ideal. And I don't think I would, I would be doing Django justice if um, if I told you how long it took us because we went we went about it in like in a kind of like a roundabout way. If I could go back in time, I probably would have just built a web application using just Django and their Django templating system and, and vanilla JavaScript and what have you and bootstrap. And uh, because that's honestly what we're doing right now. I think the, the bottleneck on the React Native app, uh, partially part of it was Apple. Apple, when we submitted our first MVP, they did not like the user generated content aspect of the app and they, they insisted on extra extra measures uh, before they would approve the app. So what does that mean? So on our app, so we don't we don't allow people to post pictures yet, but they can pretty much craft any message and put it up on the platform and other people can kind of see that. And Apple calls that user generated content. And for user generated content, they have two requirements. 
they you must uh, you must have an ability to block other users. You you can imagine why because maybe one user wants to abuse another user maybe verbally. So they insisted on we didn't have that in our MVP. They insisted that we add the ability to block other users. Okay, so now every every user needs to track a list of other user IDs for which they don't want to see that user's um, activities. All right, so we had to add that. That delayed us by two weeks. And then the other requirement was they 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 needed us to add the ability to flag for users to flag content. So maybe a user doesn't want to block another user, but they do want to flag that that piece of content for the moderators to review and and intervene. Maybe they're 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 seeing that someone is abusing someone else verbally, and they just want to flag that. Apple insisted that we add the ability to flag it and also insisted that we have some sort of internal dashboard, some sort of uh, system for reviewing the flag content. And that delayed us probably another two weeks. So that's kind of like what, what happened there on the on the phone app. Uh, also, like I was by myself. So like I'm a solo engineer and this isn't like a funded company. Right. So we don't have any investors. Um, at the time last year, early last year, I was just sort of doing this as to scratch my own itch. Like this is like an app that I wish existed. So I started building it. Um, it probably took me six months altogether to build the React Native app along with like the Django API. I spent, I had a huge, huge time sink trying to, trying to teach myself uh, Docker and Kubernetes. Um, I think I spent over a month trying to teach myself that and and once i hit the, the the real the straw that broke the camel's back was when i tried to i kind of had i did the google tutorial for django on google compute and and then when i was i deployed it and then i was like okay so how do i set up a kind of like GitOps staging server and and like a master and like a staging branch and a master branch and via GitOps have continuous deployment from the staging to the staging, from the staging branch to the staging instance and from the master branch to the production instance. And I couldn't find any decent like tutorial that would allow me to do that. Um, everyone I asked through my network just told me that that was very, very hard and, and what have you. Um, I switched to Heroku and I had all of that, all of these things that I, I, as a developer, I. Are like must-haves they're like deal breakers for me and i was able to get the the entire like infrastructure set up the way that i like on heroku in a day so that was like another thing that delayed me quite a bit right i mean i listened to that and you're like yeah i'm taking in you know docker from ground zero kubernetes from ground zero GitOps and ci cd and like all these other really deep ops related things it would be like the equivalent of trying to like compete at like the Olympic level as like a sprinter when like you just just barely just learned how to walk like it would be an insurmountable task I mean yeah it's uh it's it's an entire job function uh, unto itself right so you go to any uh, moderately sized company they're they're gonna have like a full-time DevOps engineer and they they're responsible for like uh, orchestration and containerization and and all that stuff don't get me wrong. I'm I'm all for learning stuff. Like I've been learning, I've been continuously learning for the past eight years across the stack. Like I'm a generalist, generalist in my in my opinion. I'm a generalist, generalist. But um, 
I had to time box the the whole Kubernetes thing. And once I was clocking in like at, uh, you know, a month and a half and and also when I ran into that roadblock with like, okay, so how do you do continuous deployment and not having found any decent resources for how to do that? I was like, you know what? I need to time box this. Uh, I know I can do this in Heroku uh, in a day. So Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? When you're doing that research and reading blog posts or whatever, it really has the, I don't want to say illusion, but like there's this allure that you can just learn Kubernetes, flip that switch, and then like everything is the most magical, perfect deployment, zero downtime, load balanced, HTTPS everywhere, perfect. In reality, that just doesn't work when you try to apply it to your app. There's like 8,000 rabbit holes that you need to go down before you can even get to that point. Is that kind of like what happened to you, I guess? Yeah, I think it's 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 the unknown unknown thing. So like I kind of I kind of heard that, oh, yeah, Kubernetes is a good idea. You know, you can always it'd be nice to have it on your resume. And I think as as, as engineers, if you look at any modern job description for like back-end developer, even front-end developer, you'll see that they'll list like a good 10, 20 different technologies. So we as engineers, experienced engineers, like we're not, I don't think any of us are like, you know, unfamiliar with picking something else up, right? Um, that was a very hard lesson for me to, for, for me to go through that sometimes you need to time box things and like a month and a half was, was, was enough, right? So like, and and it just wasn't pushing the needle ultimately, right? So we could always go back. We can always go, you know, continue to to Kubernetes in the future. So I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Right now, the the server, the infrastructure needs are very very small, right? So it's we're just a, a very tiny kind of like idea that's being validated with a couple of hundred users. We just we simply don't need it. And um, when we do need it, we'll we'll maybe we'll tackle that again. Right. Maybe we can go a little bit deeper into that later on. But for now, I'd like to swing a little bit more back to the app side of things. So you mentioned that you are using things like Django templates to render maybe the web app version of the app. But at the same time, you have a React Native app that's powering the mobile app. Does that mean you also have like a, a Django API backend as well? Like how does all of this come together? So we have, I, I was already experienced with Django REST framework. So we have a single API that um, has has JSON API aspects to it. So we namespace it under V1. So if you go to lit.nyc V1, um, all of those uh, kind of like JSON speaking endpoints are, are are namespaced to that. And any anything else you might start you might you might be able to access from the website is um, is kind of hitting like the Django templating system. Yeah, we have Django powering the web app, the JSON API, and then we have a separate repo for the React Native um, phone apps. So I didn't go too deep into looking at your your actual application like in a web browser, but are there some like real-time or front-end heavy things that are on the site that you had to still maybe throw into like a React app on the side, like a calendar or something like that? Not yet. So I'm, I'm very, very comfortable. Most of my career has been front-end development. Um, and I, I know JavaScript inside out, JavaScript and CSS. I know it inside out. Um, and actually it's, so, so this, this project has, has a lot of it has been, a lot of the decisions have been driven by like, okay, worst case scenario, if this doesn't work, at least I'll have learned a lot of stuff. And it's like a really amazing portfolio piece at the very least. 
and so actually this this um this web app this website is actually probably the largest django template website i've ever built uh, i've only built maybe three that was it's been an interesting exercise to see like how far i can go without introducing a front-end framework so i'm i'm not i'm not opposed to adding react i do like the idea of avoiding webpack altogether um because I do want to keep it as simple as possible. But when, uh, if we reach a point where we do want something really, really rich on the web app, yeah, we're ready to add something like Vue.js or, or maybe, uh, React to, we do, I, I didn't mention, but I'll mention it now. We do use this other service called Pusher. So basically our infrastructure right now is kind of like most things are on uh, Heroku. The native apps are obviously served uh, and delivered by the, the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. But then for some of these like real-time chatting events, so like we have uh, event chat uh, on the event pages, that is powered by Pusher. So Pusher is this third-party service, and they're very, very good at um, real-time stuff. So we're using that to power the, the group chat, and we're currently implementing direct messaging uh, using Pusher uh, for the, for the, like, the real-time direct messaging stuff. So Nice. Yeah, Pusher is basically WebSockets as a service, right? With all sorts of goodies about private channels, public channels, being able to see like online presence, all, all sorts of stuff like that, right? Yeah, I think, well, we haven't, I, I'm not super, super experienced with it. Like we just used it for one or two features. But from from what I can tell, having looked at it and, and fiddled with it, it seems like the, what is it? Not Kinesis, the, the Kafka model with just channels and... Uh, you have channels and messages, and then you have um, producers and consumers. So you have people putting out messages, and then you have other people, clients, uh, subscribing to those messages on, on certain channels. And um, that sort of mental model is, uh, is, is what Pusher gives you. Uh, you don't have to, I think under the hood, they can do the long polling, the web sockets, that's kind of abstracted away from you. Um, from our perspective, the the Django API will receive some information, like a comment, and it'll store that in the database. And then right after that, it'll actually uh, send out a trigger to Pusher saying, hey, echo this out to anyone, any active clients that have an open WebSocket. Um, they should probably hear about this via Push, um, I guess WebSocket Push, I'm assuming. And, yeah. um, and then on the front end, it's a very simple, like, JavaScript library that you can either pull in via CDN. Uh, we serve it. Basically, you you just open up a subscription, and if Pusher sends out any any new messages, you, we just um, we insert that straight into the DOM using uh, just vanilla JavaScript. Nice. Yeah, Pusher is pretty cool. I've used it a couple times in the past. It like instead of you having to set up that WebSocket server, you, you basically just you know give them that responsibility. But I do have one question about you mentioned like doing this for comments. Uh, do you ever deal with situations where, you know, let's say that a couple of users, whatever, are loaded on a certain page and there's new comments coming in? Like, are we talking like a real time chat window type of deal or you're talking more sorts of comments like commenting on a GitHub issue? Because I know it can be 
kind of distracting as a user, right? If there's constantly new things being like appended or prepended to the DOM, like, do you deal with any struggles like that? Um, I'm not too sure what you mean by struggle because that that is the user experience we're going for, right? So we do want to encourage people to um, have lively conversations about the about the event before the event and maybe after the event. Um, though we don't anticipate it to be as lively as something like a discord chat room, but, uh, we want the tooling to be there if, um, if people want to use it like that. So, uh, I guess, yes, it would be distracting, but, um, that's the intention. Right. So it's more like a chat room where you totally would want it to be updated on, you know, every event. Whereas like, I don't know, imagine like you're looking at a, an issue in GitHub and, I don't know, like 17 new comments come in while you're reading one, but you get pushed down to the bottom, like it would be hard to, to manage that. So I was just wondering like if you meant comments, like comments on a blog post type of thing or just more chat, but it sounds like chat is what you're going at, in which case uh, it works nicely. Yeah, it is It is uh, more like chat. Um, it's just a reality of like when you're, when you're actually building out a solution to something, you have to, you kind of settle on certain nouns to model your problem. And we settled on the noun of, of comments, uh, but now, you know, the velocity of those comments is just going very much higher. So maybe it's more of a message. Right. Now, going back to what you said before about trying to avoid using Webpack because, you know, it's Webpack, right? Kind of a decent amount of configuration needed to get going. Uh, do you use any other alternative tool for that? Like, are you using like SAS that needs to get compiled down into CSS or anything like that? Or ES6 JavaScript even to regular ES5 JS? Uh, no. So, so I mean, that's one of the benefits of, of like being a technologist and being able to make your own decisions on your own project. Right. So a lot of this is very, um, like, it's just, I just think that this is the right solution. Right. So, and so far, um, I've been wanting to avoid the, the bundling step, the, the minification and all this bundling step that's typically done because I don't want to. I don't, I don't, well, Django actually doesn't provide, doesn't seem to provide much out of the box um, for that. I believe you, you're probably going to chew me apart for this, but I think, I think uh, Ruby on Rails has sprockets, which uh, delivers some of these assets. Um, there's a, there's a project called Django Compressor, which will do that. Uh, so we want to add that. And we also want to add SAS compilation. Um, but those are still TVD, right? So we're still pretty, uh, yeah, I mean, I, we're, we're, I think a bigger issue is that we need to migrate to Django 3.0, right? So that's a critical sort of thing. And that, that has a higher priority than introducing, um, kind of like a front end bundler right at this moment. So, right. Yeah. don't worry. I'm not here to like judge your tech choices and chew you out based on like not using X instead of Y or, or whatever. But uh, what version of Django are you using if you're not using three? Uh, we started on two two, so it's not it's not the most out of date. But um, two two has reached the end of life, so we do that is uh, at the top of our our list. Hopefully, by the time this episode is out, we're on three Right now, I'm actually not a hardcore Django developer. You know, I've played around with a tutorial, did very very little client work where I was kind of just looking at code, not writing code. Is Django two two still using Python? 2x or are you using python 3 we're on python 3 so i think i think it's a it's a little bit orthogonal right so 
Um, you could use uh, Django 2.2 with Python 2x or 3x. I think I think maybe for 3x they might have they might have uh, pulled the plug on that and just been like, hey, you have to use 3.6 or above. Right, which makes sense, right? Because as of what is it, January first, twenty twenty, which is already like five months ago, two seven is totally end of life at this point. It's um, that's like an entire different topic. Like the whole Python two x uh, two point to three point transition has taken over a decade, I think. Um, yeah, it's been crazy. And yeah, I mean, I heard that J P Morgan's like trading desk can't still has still hasn't been updated, and they're just gonna have to do backports on that. Oh man. Well, also, I think a lot of banking places, they still use like COBOL, right? From like 1960 or something like that. That's so. true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Now, going back to your app here, uh, maybe now is a good time to maybe transition to maybe the rest of your tech stack. So you kind of mentioned that, you know, you did uh, attempt or maybe still continue to use Docker. Do you use Docker at least in development now or did you just punt that whole idea? I, you know, we've been really trying to use Docker because uh, we actually have quite a few interns. And every time we onboard an intern, getting them set up is a nightmare. So especially because we use a couple of the geospatial libraries, which if you don't know, actually have some some like C++ like library level dependencies that need to be linked. So what does that mean? Um, so we use Postgres. Postgres is very, very popular in Django. And there's an extension called PostGIS uh, that's for the geos geographical information system it's um it's for geospatial data and and then there's a there's like an extension to django called geo django with um a couple of niceties that that lets you interact with the kind of like the the gis stuff in postgres we have all of that and that actually makes it much more complicated to set up our api um, and it would be very nice to have that all in Docker because in Docker we could just uh, declare that and it would just be handled um, transparent. I don't know what the right word is. It would just be handled for you, right? So you just do Docker Compose up and you'd be, you call it a day. Um, I'm actually, I have an open stack overflow question trying to deal with a bug. So I have some random bug where we do have a... So I'm using I, uh, we're using a Django application, but it it was written a long time ago, and basically I forked it to upgrade it to Django two two, and we're actively using that fork inside of our inside of our project, and it's our list it's listed in our dependencies. So we use pip env, um, and in pip env you declare your dependencies in a pip file. And in that pip file, when I declared this dependency, it's called Django flag it. Uh, it just points directly to my fork on GitHub. And now this seems to install perfectly fine with um, on local, in local development. You know, you activate your pip env, your virtual environment, you install it. It works perfectly fine. But when I go and I try to do that in kind of like a Docker container, it seems to fail silently. So I'm still trying to get that bug fixed. And um, yeah, that's still like in progress. Uh, if push comes to shove, like I might have to, I guess, maybe not use that fork and just maybe fold that application into our source code. But I'd like to avoid that if possible. So that's kind of like what I'm struggling uh, at the moment. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to see without more context and 
probably shouldn't get into it here, but I'll for sure drop a link to that Stack Overflow link in the show notes. Maybe uh, someone can take a look at that one. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe going back to the rest of your tech stack, you mentioned you're using Postgres there. Do you also use things like Celery and Redis or no? We are going to add that very soon. So I have experience with that, uh, but it wasn't really needed in the very beginning. Now we're starting to see that we need the Celery stuff for sending the email reminders. So because this is an events platform, it would be nice to send out a, an email reminder if you've RSVP'd to an event uh, the morning of, so like 6 a.m. local time. And for that, I think we do want like a, a task queue, like Celery. Right. And then in that case, you would do something like Celery's periodic tasks on a schedule, right? Yeah, I think um, I think it's like Celery Beat or something like that. Um, but also as a stopgap before, before we go all the way with, with Celery, we actually just merged in, um, kind of like a stopgap, uh, solution using Heroku's APS scheduler. Um, it's, and I think it's just, a, a less, a less heavy duty Heroku specific kind of way to just run a Python file. So we just made a jobs.py that has a function in it. And this APS scheduler thing just seems to run it on a, on a cron schedule. Nice. Yeah, maybe now would be a, a good time to jump into that, like a little bit more about your Heroku setup. So right now at the moment, uh, how many dinos and workers do you run? We've actually, I'm actually, um, we're on a, uh, a hoppy tier dino, actually. And I was going to say that I find it a little bit kind of like a badge of honor that to see how much, how much like usefulness can I squeeze out of this like little hobby dino before having to go to like the, the professional ones. Interesting. Yeah, because when I went to your site and I loaded it here, you know, it was no different than loading, you know, github.com or Twitter or whatever. Like it just felt like it loaded fast. It wasn't like, oh, I had to wait five seconds because you're on like a low end dyno on Heroku or something like that. Yeah, you know, so um, two things, Lighthouse and White Noise. So, um, me and my team, we started, we, we actually got a complaint the, this week that, oh, it's too slow. And I was like, okay, this is the first time I've heard this complaint in like eight months. What's going on? Um, it turns out that we, uh, before using Pusher, we were uh, doing quite a bit of lo a long polling. And that probably was slowing down this poor little hobby dino. Um, but that did prompt my just like my curiosity about like okay how can we improve like the initial load speed for the landing page and for the event pages because those are the two main pages that we anticipate people hitting um first right so like maybe they hear about the 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 app and they do go to lit.nyc we want that to be fast uh maybe Someone RSVPs finds a cool event and then they SMS that, they text that to their friend, their friend opens it in their mobile Chrome, uh, they would land on a specific event page. So now we're trying, we, we just started an effort internally to get the Lighthouse uh, score to above 90. Uh, right now it's at about 70. So uh, the light, should I go into the Lighthouse score and what that is? Yeah, please let us know. <laughs> okay, so the Lighthouse score is um, it's something that's built into the Chrome DevTools, and it's basically an audit for speed, right? So, um, and Google has like their own agenda, like they they really want every website to be a progressive web app, but there's like, 
Anyway, in general, this audit is a good thing. Like if you do high on this audit, generally your, your images are appropriately, appropriately sized, right? And you're not doing anything um, really, really bad that would slow down your website. So we want to do, we want to get a 90 plus on the Lighthouse score in the Chrome DevTools. And the other thing I wanted to note is that, um, so we use white noise. And white noise is a, is a popular project in the Django ecosystem. It seems to, for some reason, Django doesn't do like the best practices out of the box. Um, but if you install this Django white noise project, it suddenly does do all the best practices regarding static files. So like, um, I believe J uh, white noise uh, serves the static assets through Unicorn or like some sort of reverse proxy like Nginx uh, as opposed to the the um, the development web server which is not designed for that and it'll also like uh, enable the gzip compression which I, I think is something else that you want to do in production so I, I can't say credit for the snappiness of the landing page um, a lot of it is probably due to just using this 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 thing called white noise in the Django ecosystem. Right. So you didn't go out of your way though on Heroku to, to set up any type of like a CDN. I'm not really sure if it does that by default or whatever, or you didn't set up anything like Cloudflare. No, not yet. So, uh, you know, Heroku has a really great, uh, add-ons, uh, marketplace. Um, there might be something like Fastly that you could just add, uh, onto the application. And I do know that Heroku has a couple of different, um, kind of like regions. So like Amazon has lots of regions. I believe that our application is served out of two regions for um, redundancy or availability. Uh, but that I think that's just all provided by Heroku and you don't get much, um, you don't get much say in how that's set up, I think. Right, which is kind of one of the value of using it, right? It's like you don't need to really get too deep in the woods about like multi-data center and you know, global distributed networks and all that stuff. You just move the slider around, push buttons, pay the money, and they kind of solve those problems for you. Yeah. I mean, that being said, we do really want to, I mean, I have a friend that is a DevOps engineer and he's always like telling me that, no, 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 you, you really do want to Dockerize your, your application. And once, once I get that Stack Overflow thing solved, I do, we do want to Dockerize stuff. Uh, you know, for the for the developer convenience, right? So just being able to do Docker Compose up, uh, but also Heroku can can accept containers to, and serve them. So I think that would be a good thing to do, um, just as insurance, so that whenever, if ever, we we want to move to something like Google Compute or AWS, it should probably be easier if our infra is already containerized. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Docker. I've been using it since about 2014 now. Uh, big, big help in development and production. Now, going back to Heroku setup using Postgres, do you use their free free tier for that one, or do you have like the hobby equivalent? So we we started on the free tier, but the free tier is actually not all that. You don't get much for it, so they cap it at something like 10,000 rows or maybe 10 million. Um, it was not big difference between the two, by the way, is it? <laughs> uh, maybe it's 10,000. Um, it was not enough. And, uh, and you also don't get, uh, the automatic snapshots. So like the data backups, 
uh we the the cheapest paid version they have is the the fifty dollar tier and we're on that right now so that's i think i think that's more of, of a on a megabyte or gigabyte basically on a disk space um pricing model as opposed to a row pricing model and it's fully managed so it has like daily backups and i'm very happy to pay for that because if this is if this has even like the slight chance of being a a real business um you know having having backups of your core data is, is very very important so i see that 50 dollars as totally fine that being said um since you know after um in the in the months since deploying i actually found out that DigitalOcean also has a managed offering that starts at 15 dollars. so if i had known about that maybe maybe that would have changed the the, the decision making process but um Right now we're using the $50 Postgres on, on Heroku and we're pretty happy with that. Right. Yeah, I took a brief look at Heroku versus Dio's managed Postgres, I don't know how long ago, a couple of weeks ago, just for curiosity's sake. And it was like the one on DigitalOcean, the $15 one, you get like one gig of RAM and one CPU core for that managed database with you know backups and all that stuff included. But the Heroku one, I think the entry level one, and you definitely know more about this than me, does not have much better specs for the $50 a month. It was something like four gigs of RAM and two CPU cores, something like that. Like the equivalent on Dio to get the same specs was roughly 50 or 60 a month. Oh, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, that's totally possible. Um, I, I really don't know all the pricing specs uh, by heart, so. Right. Now, speaking of like pricing specs and maybe some other stuff about Heroku, do you use any other add-ons for Heroku or no? Oh yeah, yeah. I wanted to get into that. So we use Paper Trail, which I can go back to. Paper Trail. I'm a big fan of Paper Trail. Um, SendGrid is uh, as an add-on was very easy to get um, started with it very quickly. Um, I think I, I want to explore Sentry next. So Sentry would provide more of a, the monitoring stuff. Uh, those are the ones that come to mind. Okay. Do you want to just like? rewind and kind of give a TLDR and what all of those do. Right. So paper trail is kind of like a managed logging service. And so they're very good at, um, you know, just draw as much logging information as you need to and they'll store it. Um, and they'll provide a very nice UI for, for searching through that log data. So basically whenever we get like application errors, like 500s, uh, Paper Trail sends us an email to the admins saying, hey, this is there's some error, look into this. And they provide a very nice uh, way to kind of like search through using um, like, it's a very rich searching interface. So it's kind of like Google where you can say this or that. Uh, you can use that on Paper Trail. Right, so it has like a query system set up. Yeah, kind of like, I, I don't know if it's Lucene or what, whatever, but... um. It's uh, it's it's very good. It's very good. So you can say, hey, give me anything that has this substring and is in has a status of like four, four xx, right? So four hundred, four hundred one, four hundred four. Um, it's very good at doing that stuff. Right. And then you mentioned, well, actually, before going into SendGrid, when it comes to Paper Trail, is that web UI like embedded into Heroku's UI, or is it like a separate dedicated UI just for Paper Trail? So from Heroku's admin panel, you can sort of look at your application 
And then in the overview, you can see your, your like installed add-ons and that'll sort of like link out. But when you link out, well, it'll link out and then you'll land on Paper Trail's website. But when you do it from Heroku's um, dashboard, they'll sort of put like a little, a thin little Heroku banner at the top saying, so that you can quickly go back. And I think, I, I think like it's the way that Heroku works with add-ons is that they, I don't know if it's single sign-on or something, but um, like if you go to Paper Trail independently, like just directly, um, it wouldn't be clear, it wouldn't be obvious how to sign in, right? So you kind of, you you kind of need to go through Heroku and Heroku will sort of insert the credentials I think maybe in the URL somehow. Right. So it's like pretty seamless to jump, like to access the paper trail through Heroku, even though it's not technically hosted directly, like embedded in Heroku's uh, admin panel. Yeah. And I think it, it wouldn't be realistic for Heroku to, to like embed every service under the sun. So they just link out to them. Right. And then you mentioned SendGrid for sending uh, transactional emails out. Yeah, I like SendGrid. They have um, They have a free tier, so you can sort of grow into it. And SendGrid also has a very good, well, right now we're, we're experimenting with their drip email offering. So drip emails are pretty popular for like, as in our case, we might not be able to get the user to sign up. Like if they just see an event, maybe they RSVP and they give the email, but maybe they're not ready. Maybe it's too much friction to ask them to sign up. Maybe they don't know what, what the heck is lit. Maybe they don't, they're not interested in signing up for a, a brand new service. But if we could get their RSVP and their email, and if we could get their permission to send them, you know, follow-up emails about the service, we want to insert them into a drip email campaign so that we can send them an email every week or two and slowly explain to them like, well, okay, so these are other events that might be related to the thing you went to. These are other benefits of having an account on Lit etc etc to see if we can convert them that way and there's quite a few solutions for that there's um like mailer light there's a company called drip that specializes in this i think and i think uh sendgrid now also has like these um these campaign like emails uh that we're we're trying to to see if that's if that offering is any good nice yeah that makes a lot of sense to have some type of functionality like that like even after they sign up, right? It's like, just show me events coming up in the next week or whatever, like, you know, just on a constant feed. Yeah, well, that, it's it's three different things. So, like, email email is like an entire entire beast uh, of a topic. Um, there's transactional email. So, like, okay, you congratulations, you signed up. Or you forgot your password. Here it is. Um, or, like, you you bought something. Here's the receipt. Those are transactional emails. And SendGrid works for that perfectly fine. But then there's, like... You've you've been able to capture uh, a little bit of an in, in interest. So, based off of that little bit of interest, uh, explain to them more about what is it that you do through an e a drip email campaign, and try to see if they'll convert sometime in the future. So that's the other topic. And then the third one is kind of like, I wouldn't say it's transactional. I would say it's more like customized emails. So like if you if you ever use something like Twitter. Um, I think every month or so, and, and YouTube as well, if you have a YouTube channel, every month or so, you'll get a very custom report via email about uh, what what have you missed on Twitter, 
How did your videos do on YouTube, uh, on Twitter? What was your best performing tweet? And I think that, I, I'm, this is speculation, but I think Twitter probably has like some machine learning subsystem uh, coupled with the email system to push out a, a dynamic sort of uh, email there. So that's like something else that we want to develop. I'm not sure. I don't think SendGrid has anything like that. I think we would probably have to build something custom in our in our Django application uh, to generate those and then just push them up to SendGrid to, to for to deliver it. But um, those are kind of like the three things regarding email that we are we're looking into. Nice. So maybe on the topic of other like SaaS tools or services that you might be using, and this kind of relates to maybe what you're just talking about in the sense that like you know your app is doing kind of a lot of useful things for people who sign up. Do you actually like charge for any of this or no? Do you Stripe if you do? Not yet, but I I have experience with Stripe. We do, Stripe seems like the obvious solution. So when we're ready to uh, charge users for, we're exploring like a LinkedIn business model where like LinkedIn charges based off how many people you want to message. And if you're going to be like messaging a hundred people, maybe you should be paying for for LinkedIn. That's kind of what we're thinking with um, with Lit. We want to offer like a Lit Premium tier, which maybe grants you access to some some events that the company might be uh, organizing, or some some power tools, or maybe more be the ability to message more people. Maybe that's kind of what we're experimenting. Um, but we have to build that, and when we do, uh, we'll probably use Stripe, yeah. Okay. So now maybe speaking about things you've built or may build in the future, do you just recall, like, off the top of your head, like, any interesting Python packages that you use to help build this app? Like, what's in your requirements at text, or would you say pipenv instead? Yeah, with pipenv, it's the it's a pip file. I mean, there's that random fork that I have. Um, we use Black, the Black formatter. That's in our pipenv, so... Um, that's kind of like the Python equivalent of of JavaScript's Prettier. So, uh, if you're familiar with that, yep, like a general purpose linting tool. Yeah, it's yeah, it's more for like stylistic issues. Yeah, I mostly use Flake. Haven't used Black much. Yeah, I like Black because it goes. It's more opinionated, and that's kind of what I want. I want something even more opinionated. Uh, I'm a big fan of like Ruby on Rails and Django for those reasons. Let's see. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have Django channels which is um, kind of more of a recent development. So the so Python is a blocking language, uh, but in three, I think in 3.0 or in more modern versions of Python, they added the async keyword. Previously, if you wanted to do things that are very, very like async heavy stuff, you would have to pull in a, a third library, third, third party library. Um, the twisted framework for Python comes to mind. Uh, people used to build like highly concurrent services using that. But now that all that stuff can be phased out and can be written with a, more of a native approach to the language, like a language Python native approach. And Django channels is something along those lines for basically exposing channels, uh, I think WebSockets from, from Django. So, but it's still very new. Um, there's only like one or two tutorials and they're both for chatting to how to build a chat system. Um, there's actually an interesting... I think this is how I I found out about this podcast. Um, today, there was an interesting thread on the Django subreddit. 
and there was someone on there trying trying to figure out well what kind of tutorials would people like for Django channels and I told them that if they could build something like a real-time dashboard or like a stock trading chart type thing that I think that would be a good application for Django channels um, the Django channel stuff and uh, has you use a different uh, gate interface so if you're familiar with WSGI, WSGI, uh, when you use Django channels, you end up using a ASCII, ASGI. Um, that might be something you'll see there. Let's see. We use Django REST framework, right? So that's a popular way to get CRUD, CRUD operations uh, over a JSON API. We use the Pusher library from Pusher. So speaking of that, by the way, do you think once Django channels gets maybe more tutorials, better documentation, possibly just fleshed out a bit more. Do you see yourself replacing Pusher with that in the future? Maybe. Uh, I was trying to express this sentiment earlier, but I don't know if I did the best job uh, expressing it, which is like that I've been doing software development now for eight years, and I've seen many different sort of stacks come and go. And right now, when it, when it comes to trying to build like something to retire off, which is what I hope I hope I could build it up and potentially sell it or maybe make it a very large company that would, you know, provide a, a healthy living. Um, when it comes to that, um, I'm very risk averse, right? So I, I chose Django because I understood it. I, I, I know that people can build, have built viable businesses with this. Um, Instagram is like the famous case. That's kind of why we, we chose that. And then with Pusher, um, the immediate need is to build some real-time chat. And if, uh, if it keeps on working and if we can keep on affording it, um, given the business model, I, I see no reason to replace it. Um, if sometime in the future, some future engineer wanted to champion that effort to move off of Pusher and internalize that, that'd be great. And, and I'd, be, I'd be okay with that if it made sense. Right. Now on the topic of Pusher still a bit more, do you use their free tier or one of their paid ones? We're on the free tier. Uh, so I'm, I'm a very big fan of like free tiers, right? So free tier obviously because, but I think it just makes a lot of sense because like if, if we do well, you will do well. So I think, I think you should have a free tier. It's my biased opinion. And, and then the, the growth, the, the projected numbers there, right? So the next tier up is $50, the next tier up is 100 and then 300 These numbers don't seem like crazy numbers like to me. So I think if we are getting that much traffic and people, our customers are getting or our users are getting that value, I, me personally, I would be okay paying these amounts of money. Yeah, I don't know their plan off the top of my head, but it's like, yeah, if you're going to be spending 50 or 300 bucks a month, it's like just millions and millions and millions of messages sent per month with like tens of thousands of concurrent messages. Like, yeah, if you're at that point, you should be patting yourself on the back, not worrying about like 200 bucks a month or something. Yeah. It's more of, um, it's tough because we are a consumer facing product, right? So traffic is a concern for us, but, um, I think we'll figure it out. Right. So, uh, if we get to a point where the infrastructure is too expensive, we have some options, you know, we can move off a pusher, um, if, if Heroku tends, uh, ends up being too expensive, we can move off Heroku to something uh, lower level like AWS or GCP. But it's a bit too early for us to, to focus on that. So first we got to get the traffic and, and once we do, then we'll deal with those problems. So 
going back maybe to your deploy process, you know, you mentioned you're you're using Heroku. Heroku is pretty famous around like just get push your code and it works. Like, but with that said, do you want to just walk us through what it's like for you to deploy your code from development to production? Like, do you use a CI service, like you know, pushing it up to GitHub or somewhere else? Yeah. So, so me and my team basically we we use Gitflow. You check out from staging and you make a feature branch and you push that up to GitHub and you open a pull request to, to merge your feature branch into staging. I, I tend to review it, so I'm kind of like the tech lead for this project. Uh, I review it, any changes that need to be made, they get made, uh, and we merge that into staging. Right now we're using Heroku Pipelines. So Heroku Pipelines is um, Heroku's offering for like a continuous deployment uh, pipeline. And basically we have it set up so that I think either, it, it, it don't really know how it works, but either GitHub sends out a message to Heroku to letting it know that something happened, like something emerged into staging, or maybe Heroku is long polling. Either way, uh, somehow Heroku is, becomes aware that something, some change happened on staging. It'll pull in that from staging and deploy the redeploy the staging branch using that code and that's uh that's using heroku's pipeline offering though now we're trying to experiment with github actions because that's like a recent development so github recently introduced these action service which is kind of like it seems to be like a continuous integration it's kind of like circle ci or code ship you just get like a virtual machine to do something um on some on some github action Potentially phasing out the the Heroku pipeline. So I asked someone else and they said that it's totally possible to get the GitHub action to push to Heroku's staging and production um, on those on those activities. Nice. So like, I guess, high level, your end goal, you would just want to be able to eventually merge code to your staging branch on GitHub. And that would trigger off a push to Heroku. So you don't need to like push to two different origins manually or something like that, right? Well, it's it's already automated. Oh, right, through the pipelines. Um, I just, so this is more of a personal thing. I just want to learn GitHub Actions because uh, it seems like it's probably going to become much more popular in the future. Why? Because it's deeply integrated with the code repository. So GitHub is already a very popular service in and enterprise environments for just storing the, the, the code. It's uh and GitHub Actions seems to be like a free version of something like code or like Travis CI or CodeShip or Circle CI. I feel like a lot of people, the ecosystem is probably gonna rally around it, right? So you're just gonna see more people that are familiar with that setup, more tutorials are gonna be made using that setup. And I'm very bullish on GitHub Actions. I think it's gonna be something akin to like Docker, like Docker is very, very standardized. You kind of want to learn it because everyone, everyone sort of supports it. I really believe that GitHub Actions is going to be like that. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like I'm, I'm very pumped about that service. The only thing that's like, I'm a little bit reluctant about, and you know, this is totally opt-in, like you don't even need to use these features, but it's like when you're executing other people's actions from like a non-official repo, like you're, if you're not using GitHub's official action repo, then suddenly it's like you're dealing with potentially production, like things that are running in your production environment. Like if your CI or GitHub action setup is building like Docker images and pushing them to like 
a Docker registry or whatever, you have to be very careful about which actions you decide to run in your pipeline because this is like other people's code sitting in a repo somewhere. Like you need to, you know, really, really review that code because now we're talking about your production system. But I really like the idea. Like it's an awesome like concept of like, wow, you know, just pull in all these like, you know, potentially thousands of things that other people wrote, you know, drop a couple of lines in your actions file and like you're done. And that's amazing. Yeah, I actually have um, like an open source library called React Native Contacts. And we recently added an action there to just um, mark old issues as stale and then close them if they're inactive. So uh, there's a lot, there's a like kind of like the Heroku add-ons. There's like a, a large ecosystem of uh, GitHub actions that are uh, pretty popular and well-reviewed that you can just um, one-click add. Yeah, and the cool thing too, and like I don't want to go too deep into this stuff too, it's like, you know, it's not just for your CI pipeline to deploy code, right? It's like, you, like you mentioned, you can do all sorts of like ancillary things that are important to take care of, uh, you know, like an open source repo, like closing issues, tagging things, like all sorts of good stuff. Uh, it's going to be awesome, I think. Mm -hmm. So going back to your app here, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about how you deal with secrets, like API keys and, you know, Django secrets, anything like that. Do you keep them in like environment variables? Like how does that work with Roku? Hopefully they're not commit to uh, to your version control. Yeah, so I don't know if Heroku popularized the 12 factor apps, but the 12 factor apps is a thing. So the 12 factor apps, I think you can just Google it. It's like 12factorapps.net. And it's an opinionated set of like principles for cloud software. Um, and they're, they're like 12 tenants. Like one of them, one of them is like, uh, logging. So everything, every application should log to standard out. And then whatever system that that application is running in should just be reading, piping standard out to a logging system. So that's one of the tenants. One of the other tenants is like the environment variables, right? So, um, that tenant states that an application's configuration should be provided by the environment within it, within which it, it is running. And that allows for like flexibility where you can just change the environment and the application should behavior should change. Right. So a lot, a lot of this stuff is in rocket science, but it's, it's, um, it's really spelled out. And so for Heroku, I think Heroku championed those 12 factor apps. I might be wrong. Um, in any case, Heroku, the way you manage the, the secrets is you go into their panel for the application and you would edit the, the key values right there for the environment variables. And we kind of do that. That's like a manual process. So basically a, a super admin would have to sign in and um, add or remove or edit secrets that way. For, de for development, we use uh, .env files. And pipenv has native support for .env files, so the .env file is ignored from version control. We do have a .env.template, which just shows kind of like what this is for for developer convenience, like what what secrets they could provide, um, so that if they think that they need a secret, they could probably know what to ask for. Right, so they can just take that template file, copy it over to like a regular .env file, and then situationally override or uncomment what they need, something like that? Yeah, it's just a template. So there's no actual true secrets in the template. It's just providing like, well, these are the names of the variables, and if you need, if you, if you need that secret, at least you know what to, at least you can ask for it by name. 
Right. So now when it comes to Heroku's secret management, let's say you go into their, you know, the super admin panel and you change something like you just need to reroll an API key or update an email credential or something like that. How does that process work? So are you able to redeploy your application without having to, because you wouldn't have a, like a new commit to push up to it. Can you just kind of like restart your dyno somehow through that or no? Yeah, you can. So you, like maybe more of a junior developer might 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 think, oh, I need to put in another commit to to trigger a, a redeploy, and that that's a fair assumption. But um, you can just go in the in the main overview and say uh, redeploy from this branch, and it'll just it'll just do that. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a good feature to have because, like security related, sometimes you just need to reroll these keys, but not deploy new code, but still want to you know roll over the server. So. Let's talk now maybe a little bit about like disaster recovery, unexpected events. You mentioned that, you know, Heroku kind of manages your database for you. They do the backups. Uh, you don't need to worry too much about that. Uh, but do you have any like user uploaded files? Like do they upload like pictures of their head, like an avatar or anything like that or no? Yeah, we do. So we we kind of like our, our inspiration is like Hinge, which is a dating app. And there you're you're encouraged to upload six photos. I didn't actually describe this part of the architecture. So we actually use S3 for the, as an object store for the photos. So our Django application knows how to provide a pre-signed post URL uh, that the phone app can then use to upload the, the image directly to S3. And then after that upload is done, it'll do another post to our API saying, hey, this image is now exists um here's the url for it on the s3 so that that gets uh recorded in uh in the database there nice and do you use what is it uh django storage to deal with that or no no so we kind of rolled our own solution with uh boto3 so boto3 is the python aws i don't know why they called it boto3 um but that's the that's the python aws sdk so you go to boto3.s3 and you can do all you can generate a, an s3 client and and all those things so right now an interesting maybe discussion about that would be what would happen if you're in development and you kind of want to test that functionality do you just end up uploading that to like like a dev s3 bucket or do you have like a, something to mock out to only do it to like the local file system we decided that for our purposes it was okay to upload to the production bucket, uh, even in development, because the key that that is used to, or kind of like the file name, if you will, that that gets that gets generated to put for for what what to name that object on S three has like a time component to it. So unless we have like lots of developers testing the photo upload aspect of the application at the same time, we we thought that that was not very likely to happen. So we, we chose to simplify there. So, Right. Yeah, it's one of those things, right, where it's like that's the easiest way to get going and it works. So don't worry about it for now, right? Yeah. Okay. So do you have any like automated tests that you also run in development, like using PyTest or some other library? We actually, that's, that's where we think uh, the GitHub actions would really shine, right? So right now the Heroku pipeline doesn't really have a, 
an integration aspect to it, right? So I think integration means that you run a test suite and then you don't allow merging unless the test suite passes. Deployment just means, hey, just take this code and upload the server, uh, update the servers. Um, so we're kind of lacking on the integration side, which would mean having a good test suite and running that on every feature branch before merging. But I actually think that the, the GitHub Actions could actually really shine uh, in the short term by simply running the test suite, right? So that's kind of like what we're trying to, that's what we're experimenting with like in the next week or two. Right, so for now, do you have maybe a local test suite that you can just run on your dev box or is that like what you're gonna be working on this week and next week? We are, honestly, I'm also teaching my team how to test too, right? So it's a whole bunch of really, really junior developers. So yeah, we don't, our test suite is very, needs a lot of work, right? So. I think something that happens a lot with test suites is that they 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 get out of date very quickly, right? So I had a test suite months ago. I mean, almost a year ago, I had a test suite, but then somewhere along the line, we stopped testing as much or whatever, and we didn't keep it up to date. So like now it's mostly outdated. So we're kind of just building the test suite up now um, over again. Right. Well, that seems like a good idea, right? Eventually, at some point, having a, a really nice test suite helps out. Like those junior developers at some point will realize like, you know what, maybe they get a little bit outdated, but six months or a year later, it's like, wow, that test like saved my life. Well, maybe not saving their life literally, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I would really love to get coverage, right? So coverage calculations, because in the same way that the the Lighthouse audit is 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 like grading our front end to see if, is it, if it's performant, or if it's doing kind of like the, the best practices on the front end, um, I would really love to get coverage calculated and then have that uh, above 90% as well on the on the code base. So it's something that we, 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 we do as we go. So I try to teach my, my team that, okay, so you build a feature and then you, you, in that same PR, try to fix like one small piece of technical debt um, where that could be like, okay, maybe add a test, or maybe something else that we did that we've been doing over time is that we've been deprecating jQuery. So initially when I started the web application, I was like, okay, we can do this with jQuery, right? So jQuery is kind of how you do this uh, Django web app. But the more I chatted on the Django IRC on a free note, um, I kind of got the impression that in, in 2020, even like a year ago, um, jQuery is only in Django for like, for historical reasons. Um, I think, I think what's trending now is to try to do vanilla JS. So just document dot query selector and, and just JavaScript stuff. So we're now all of, a lot of the jQuery stuff that I wrote a couple months ago, we're, we're slowly, uh, re refactoring that to, to eliminate jQuery where, where we can. Yeah. I kind of stopped using jQuery personally, probably like, I don't know, a year ago, but it's weird. You go back to writing vanilla JavaScript, like adding event listeners and query selectors. And sometimes you do want to reach, like you miss some of the convenience that you get from jQuery, at least from like, from my point of view, as someone who's not like super hardcore into JavaScript, but still, you know, can write some code. Uh, but I do feel like I'm, I'm missing some convenience things. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. So people would argue, some people would argue that, um, jQuery was necessary because of the browser incompatibilities, but nowadays most of the browsers have kind of 
the situation has gotten much much better so um to me it's kind of like it's kind of like uh kind of like a challenge kind of like a nerd challenge to me like i want to see if i can do it in pure javascript because i just I actually haven't been doing that um and it's been been very interesting it's been very interesting trying to see how far you can get without jquery just as an exercise right yeah, no, doing stuff like that is, is totally cool. I, I like doing that stuff from time to time. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? I would say, I mean, like if I could go back in time, I probably would have started uh, on the web app first. So I probably would have built a website. And even, 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 even stepping back from that, I probably would have done more in terms of marketing the app and building out an audience before investing serious time into building the prototype. Um, if you're familiar with like this other community called the Indie Hackers, they push that a lot. They push that this idea of like, okay, engineers have this nasty habit of jumping into coding something up. And then when they have it coded up, then they struggle to get people to use it. They would argue, and many people argue now that, hey, maybe you should Maybe you should throw a landing page up with an email um, box and see if you can collect 100 emails before you actually start building the thing. So I wish I would have done that. But even on a technical level, I wish I would have built the website first because it seems to be it seems to be harder to get people to install a phone app um, than to just poke around on a website and 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 get them interested in the offering that way. Right. So. Um, having a user visit something.com seems to be less less of an ask than telling them, hey, install this random app from iTunes. Right now, we're kind of, ultimately, we're going to have all parity on both. Ultimately, we're going to have a fully featured web app and a fully featured phone app. Um, but if you had to choose uh, strongly, I would, I would strongly consider just the website. And even the website, honestly, you could probably build it with um, with WordPress or, or Webflow these days. So it really depends on what you're building. But even in your case, though, and correct me if I'm wrong here, while you did build the native apps first, you still had that Django REST framework API still going in the back end, right? Or no? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that, so our MVP was a React Native app uh, on both stores and a Django API Django REST Framework API on Heroku. So the Heroku uh, made it easier, quicker, uh, so time to market. It was a quicker time to market with Heroku than trying to do some, roll your own Kubernetes on, on AWS. You know, React choosing React Native probably would have been faster than writing an app in Swift and, and, and uh, Kotlin for both. So, but then I would say that if I could talk to myself a year ago, I probably would have told myself, hey, just build a web app um, and you would be able to test so many more assumptions more easily that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, the barrier to entry is kind of scary when you have to think about building multiple native apps just to kind of get the idea of whether or not this thing is going to work or not. Um, yeah, I guess my, my advice would be probably to just build a website first. Okay. So, Harry, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So, before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that? Yeah. So, the the site that I've been talking about this um, this episode is lit, L-I-T-T dot N-Y-C. 
you can go there and find out more about it. If you uh, are into Instagram, you can find the, the Instagram account and follow that. Um, I'm available at, on Twitter at M-O-R-E-N-O-H-149. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.